What do you have to do to be successful over a 34-year career in the blueberry industry? What drew me into organic was the industry asking me to. A couple of growers on the Oregon Blueberry Commission approached me and said, Bernadine, you've had such an impact in conventional production. We want you to do the same thing for organic. We see a huge market opportunity for organic. On today's episode, I sit down with an industry icon who has had a tremendous impact on the growth and development of our blueberry farming practices, and I take this opportunity to get her perspective on what's needed and next for the industry as she retires from her post. This copyrighted podcast is presented by the U.S. Highbush Blueberry Council. The opinions and views shared by those of non-paid guests on the business of blueberries are those of our guests and do not represent the views, positions, or policies of the USHBC. The blueberry industry is like no other, passionate, resilient, and innovative. This podcast is your source for the latest information on the management, markets, research, and technology related to blueberry production. This is the business of blueberries. Here's your host, president of the U.S. Highbush Blueberry Council, Casey Cronquist. Welcome back to another episode of The Business of Blueberries, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to the blueberry industry. I'm proud to finally welcome today's guest, Bernadine Strick, Professor Emeritus of Horticulture and Berry Crop Specialist and Researcher at Oregon State University. Bernadine is a well-known name in the industry and especially in the Pacific Northwest with a career spanning 34 years. Her research has focused on improving yield and quality, machine harvest efficiency, pruning, optimization of production systems, plant nutrition, and organic production systems in all berry crops. She also operates a consulting business to aid growers and companies internationally. If you regularly read about blueberry research in ag trade magazines, you've surely come across her name at some point. Last fall at the USHBC NABC Tech Symposium and Fall Meetings, Bernadine was presented with the Duke Galletta Award for Excellence in Horticulture Research by the North American Blueberry Council. And most recently, she was recognized by the Oregon Blueberry Commission with their Lifetime Achievement Award. Bernadine, welcome to the business of blueberries. Thank you, Casey. It's a pleasure to be on the show. I'm an avid listener. Well, I know you are, and and the times we've had the chance to talk, I've appreciated you saying so. Again, it's been an interview I've been looking forward to. I think it seems appropriate at this point to sit down and kind of have you share with us the things that I've heard you talk about, I think now a number of times in, in the different settings I've been able to hear you speak in, but you're, you're such a wealth of information, knowledge, and of the growers I've spoken to, obviously the lifetime Achievement Award speaks for itself and the award that our organization gave you in the fall of last year, but the sense of appreciation that the growers I've spoken to have for your career in this business, you know, just the way in which they genuinely wouldn't be where they are today had you not been a part of their life. And that's really a tribute to, you know, your career, your commitment and your, your investment into their lives and to the business that they're in. And so, of course, the business of blueberries, we, we have to have you on the show. And so I'm so glad that you joined us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. You bet. You know, I've only known of you for the past two years, and many of our listeners are going to know exactly who you are, but let's not assume too much. There will be people who, who may not be familiar with your career in the blueberry business. So I thought we'd just start off with how you got involved with berries and just generally agriculture as a whole. Sure. 
So I recently retired from my 34-year career at Oregon State University, and I did research, teaching, and extension. And I came here to Oregon State immediately after my PhD, which was in 1987 at the University of Guelph in Canada. And I did my PhD in berries. But when I came to Oregon, I looked at blueberries kind of with new eyes, which is often helpful and noticed some ways growers were growing blueberries that I chatted with them about and questioned, which is always good. And, and when growers say, well, we've never thought of doing it that way, that opened a research opportunity. And I was raised on a farm from horticulturally trained parents. So my overriding goals when I started my program at OSU were to help develop production systems that improved yield and quality for growers while uh, increasing net returns. So the economic piece has always been really important to me and a big part of the research. It's been important because that's how farms are successful. And when you can predict what yields are going to be for a certain sized age farm, when you manage them a certain way, that also helps with marketing and, and returns. I've done various trials over the years, many of which were long-term trials. And while growers can do these trials, they often don't know how to do them replicated so they have confidence in the results. And often there are risks when growers do certain trials on their own farms. And so by doing them at a research station, at a land-grant institution, we take on that risk. And in the grant-funded, often industry-funded research, the other advantage is then we can share the results with the whole industry. And this leads to more rapid adoption and impact. And you know, our industry here in Oregon changed a lot. In 1987, when I came here, there were like 1,200 acres of uh, blueberries and 7 million pounds, and maybe 2% was organic. In 2020, we had 15,000 acres and 160 million pounds and 20% organic. And while I can't take credit for all of that change, because of course, blueberries have boomed everywhere, the changes in production systems that have come along with those changes do reflect impact in the industry. And that's been very rewarding. And, and getting those industry awards that you mentioned was a huge honor. Well, it's fun to see you in your element in the fall last year when we had the tour. And I think you had that uh, uh, great jacket, that blueberry jacket on, and we were touring through the research station. And uh, I mean, it, it was incredible, I think, not just for our group to see what you had been doing at the research station, but it was just great to see you sharing all of that history and wisdom with the group in that space. So it was a privilege for me. And I just think that a lot has changed because of your influence there in Oregon, but certainly across the world who have benefited from that research station and your work. You did talk about how much things have changed in Oregon specifically, but it's true it's changed for the industry as a whole. When you look back over your career, you know, what's that milestone for you? that stands out? Is there one thing for you in your career or within the industry that you look back on and like, that's the thing, or that's something that just is the one thing that, that you look back on and, and impresses you? I think probably 
the impact on how they're grown specifically, because now when I see the second generation of farmer on a farm and they're asked, you know, why do you plant them this way in the row and why do you have a trellis? And their response is, well, we've always done it this way. And it's actually not true. It's just when you've had a 34 year career, changes that happened early on are now standard practice. So looking at high density planting when I arrived, normal was uh, four to five feet in the row. And when I asked growers, can we go closer? They said, geez, no one's ever tried that. Do we need to take out every other plant? And so I got funding from the Blueberry Commission. And after a 10-year study, that led to the standard now, which is two and a half to three feet in the row. And we documented that that increased yield 60 to 140% during the establishment years, which, you know, the first eight years, which was hugely significant and of huge economic benefit. And we also documented that not all cultivars are adapted to that high density because they have large root systems. So that was very helpful to growers. And coupled with that, we looked at a simple two-wire trellis to improve bush architecture and improve machine harvest efficiency. And that improved returns by 8% of total yield each year, quickly paying for the trellis. And that was very quickly adopted, not just in Oregon, the high density and the trellising, but nationwide and worldwide, even in hand harvest uh, situations to improve hand harvest efficiency. That and then with raised beds, which is a planting method from the get-go, even in good blueberry soil, we've shown over 10 years that improves yield more than 20%. And it doesn't just improve total bush yield, it improves machine harvest efficiency because the catcher plates fit you know, lower down on the bush where the crown is more narrow, so we have less drop on the ground. And that's all standard practice now, which is exciting. Absolutely. So what drew you into organic production? What drew me into organic was the industry asking me to. It was a a couple of growers on the Oregon Blueberry Commission approached me and said, Bernadine, you've had such an impact in conventional production. And we in the blueberry industry here in Oregon, with our climate, very dry summers, low weed presence, relatively speaking, low pests in this region compared to other regions, no Japanese beetle, no blueberry maggot. They approached me and said, We want you to do the same thing for organic. We see a huge market opportunity for organic. And we don't know whether we can just do the substitution method, which is, okay, we apply so many pounds of nitrogen in conventional, can we just find the equivalent in organic? Or whether we need to modify production systems more. With that came Oregon Blueberry Commission money to establish a one acre planting, which you saw at that US HBC. It is now 15 years old and we got federal funding after the seed money. And we've done a lot in that trial to learn about organic blueberry production. So I wouldn't have started it without the industry because it was only 2% organic at the time. And all of the grower assessments came from conventional growers. So it was them asking me that sort of spurred the trial. Well, and, and, you know, I guess my interest in asking that was just that you, it's become so much one of your calling cards as a researcher and a consultant is just how significant that has been for our industry and just seeing the growth in organic, you know, generally speaking. But when you look at our industry, 
just how remarkable that transition has been towards uh, organic production, especially there in Oregon, and largely due to your research. Well, thank you. It's something I'm very proud of. I think uh, if we look worldwide, our organic blueberry program is really the only one of its kind in the world. And so we have been able to help organic growers considerably on the best production systems, which include mulch, cultivar differences, and fertilization practices that lead to, if you choose the right ones, yields that are very similar to conventional production. And that's important because while returns are higher for organic blueberries, the costs are also higher, particularly for fertilizer. So the mulch piece and the fertility piece are key because when I started organic research in 2006, the most common in-row mulch was sawdust in our region. And we showed that weed mat, which is a woven black polyethylene ground cover, reduced weed management costs by 75%. And that's huge for organic growers and even conventional growers found that they needed fewer herbicide sprays, which saves cost, but is also better for the environment. So weed mat over bare soil became quickly adopted, which increased yield also in some varieties. In addition to the mulching research, which benefited conventional also, it was the impact we had on organic fertilization that was huge because there was a lot of production in Eastern Washington also that was organic at the time. And we started with a rate of nitrogen that organic growers were typically using at the time. And then I went with half rate, which I thought was going to be maybe better. And we compared fish fertilization, which was the standard at the time, and feather meal, which was a granular product. So we fertigated the fish and applied the granular in a split application. And we quickly found consistently that the high rate of fertilizer either reduced yield compared to the low rate or it had equivalent yield. And that was consistent over the 10-year study. And what was interesting about that was that fish fertilizer was the most commonly used and at the typical rate that growers were using, it was reducing yield in the most common blueberry grown organically, Duke. So I quickly recommended growers go at least a half rate on what they were doing, depending on what rate they were applying. And growers quickly got back to me and said, they did that and they saw an increase in yield, which was a huge affirmation of our research. And then of course, the research question became, why is yield lower in Duke at a high rate of fish? And at the time in 2006, the organic fertilizer products that were available didn't just have nitrogen, they commonly also had phosphorus and potassium. And in our region, potassium is sufficient in soil, most commonly. And so we were applying excess potassium and Duke was clearly sensitive to that, reducing yield. And so then we switched in uh, 2017 to applying products that had no potassium. The organic industry changed, organic fertilizer industry changed. We had way more acreage. They were developing products that only had nitrogen. So we chose one of those, a soy protein to fertigate, and we saw increases in yield 
when we applied only nitrogen. So this led to one of the things I'm most proud of is warning growers that excess isn't better and excess can cause problems. We know that with nitrogen, but we now know it with potassium, that if your soil's sufficient and your leaf tissue testing is showing sufficiency, don't apply it, whether you're conventional or organic. And that was a huge finding. Well, I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation with Bernadine, but before we do, let's take a quick break for our crop report. This North American season is well underway, and as we inch closer to the summer and peak season, we're welcoming more and more regions onto our report. So here, once again, is your Blueberry Crop Report. It's time for your Blueberry Crop Report, an update on crop conditions and markets from important blueberry growing areas. Today, you'll hear from Brandon Wade in Georgia. This was recorded on April 6th, 2022. What we're seeing in our fields is I guess technically uh, shaping up well, we've, we've got maybe 60% of our current crop on our personal fields. Sizing is going well. The only question for us is still on what's the damage, whether we've got any internal damage or frost scarring that we've got to eliminate post-pick. The rumors in the market, I guess, to make it a little bit stronger than what I mentioned last week, which was possibly a 40%, 45% overall market compared to what we would have had. It's shaping maybe a little stronger than that to the west, southwest of us, the Homerville area. It looks like those guys fared better on average than we did in the Alma area, which is slightly northeast. Um, and so it's still anybody's guess what the actual number is, but I guess 50% uh, still a reasonable estimate as to what we saved collectively as a state from the last freeze. Uh, we're picking our first pick this week or earlier this week and uh, several others have already gotten started so we've got kind of a slow start in the Georgia window I uh, expect it to pick up in another couple weeks well thank you so much to our busy growers who take the time to participate in these reports as a reminder you can go to the new USHBC website where you'll find our data and insight center for more data of what's happening in the blueberry industry we've added a lot more features we hope that you'll find value in the USDA shipping price and movement, the retail category performance, the Nielsen monthly retail sales. And we most recently added the FAS export report. So if you'd like to see more about where uh, berries are going around the world, please visit ushbc.org forward slash data to check that out. Well, let's get back to our featured conversation with Bernadine Strick. Bernadine, I wanted to talk a bit about what you've seen in this area as an industry for us, and then where you see things going in the future. Yeah, um, the three key areas that, that I see are, what do we know about blueberry physiology and anything related to climate resiliency, which is a big issue. And then when we look at the environmental sustainability and how we've improved efficiency of fertilization and irrigation and the impact that has. And then the third piece would be on what we know about carbon sequestration in the field. So those are the areas that I have some thoughts on and how some of them might be, you know, good for marketing. This is a big topic for a lot of folks right now. And, you know, I think in the case of sustainability, you know, it's an area that we as an industry may have a lot of opportunity, not just in the marketing side, but just to, to be able to represent that we're already essentially doing, but not getting credit for or not being recognized as a specialty crop that's doing a good job. 
So, you know, it's kind of two parts to that, but I, I think I kind of want to stay into like what we're doing right now that in your mind represents a differentiation amongst competing plants or competing specialty crops that is unique to blueberries. And then we can talk a little bit about what more we can be doing and then what we could be marketing. Sure. So I think that one of the things our blueberry growers deserve a great deal of credit for is really good management. I mean, the successful growers have exceptionally good management. And related to that are things that really improve uh, the environment as a whole that many are not aware of. So when you look at the way most blueberries are grown in the U.S., we have a situation where we often have a between-row cover crop, commonly it's sod. That plus an in-row mulch minimize uh, soil erosion and also improve the fruit quality by minimizing dust that ends up on the fruit, which also reduces pest presence and the need for pesticide applications for many pests. And then we have the improved efficiency of fertilization. A lot of that is from research that uh, we've done here at OSU, but also in some other programs throughout uh, the country where we don't apply nitrogen fertilizer until we know the plant takes it up, which is at bloom. Fertilizer applied earlier just washes through the root zone and can potentially end up in the groundwater. And we have gone with lower rates of conventional and organic products, which minimizes the amount of fertilizer that's left at the end of the season, which can end up in groundwater also. Uh, that reduces costs for growers, but it also means we're targeting, we have very efficient application. More and more growers are fertigating now, which puts that fertilizer right where the roots are. Then we have irrigation systems, which are mainly drip. So growers are applying water that the plants need to meet plant demand, not excess and not less. And so that is extremely efficient for water use and water availability is becoming a big issue in many regions. So efficiency of fertilization, irrigation, minimizing soil erosion, those are all factors that are really improving blueberry sustainability and environmental conscious factors for conventional as well as organic growers. Are there areas in which you believe we could be doing a better job in our sustainability efforts on behalf of the industry? There are two areas that I think researchers need to, and breeders need to take up the mantle of, you know, making our industry better adapted to climate changes. So that's one area. The, the other is in just being more aware of carbon sequestration, which can be something that, that could be used already as part of that marketing effort for you know the, the buyers that are interested in, in purchasing a more sustainable product. Carbon sequestration is part of that. Me, a grad student, Denise Nemeth, and a colleague, John Lambrinos, did research on this and published it in, in 2017, uh, where we looked at a long-lived crop like blueberries. If we looked at a mature field, we expected it to be quite a, a sink for atmospheric carbon, but no one had looked at that 
in a mature blueberry field. And uh, we wanted to see how much carbon was sequestered and whether production practices had any impact on that. And it was pretty eye-opening, our findings. So in that, in that understanding, what's your recommendation for our organization as a representative of the whole? But what's your sense of, of our obligation to dig deeper into this and really communicate what your findings and what we're finding or what blueberries represents in this area? Well, I'm a real uh, proponent for science-based research. So I would look at taking this the next step, which is what can we use this background information for to have accurate uh, carbon credits for blueberry fields. But from a marketing standpoint, I think that, you know, we have our millennials and Gen Z generation very interested in anything that's related to what's better for the environment. And and that includes carbon sequestration and efficiency of fertilizer and water use. And having at least a piece of that related to marketing in addition to the healthful benefits, I think is on the cutting edge. I haven't seen many horticultural products do much of that other than organic versus conventional. This is beyond organic. This is something that all growers are doing. And I think it can be used to advantage. We're going to take a quick break here for our marketing boost. We'll be right back to this conversation in a moment. But for now, here's USHBC NABC Vice President of Marketing and Communications, Jennifer Sparks. Thanks, Casey. It's the first week of April, but here at USHBC, we're looking ahead to our next power period, Brain Health Month. During June, USHBC will actively lean into Brain Health Month with a key partnership with MindBodyGreen, as well as digital advertising through Facebook and Instagram and Google ads around brain food. We'll use email marketing to reach our own growing consumer audience database, as well as email communications through Better Homes and Gardens. This power period is also an obvious push for the benefits of blueberries and brain health through the health professional voice via social media, media outreach, and e-blasts. Our Blue Crew ambassadors will be hard at work showcasing blueberries in brain food-related recipes. So how do we make the message relevant? This year, USHBC is incorporating practical lifestyle tips to help consumers conceptualize food as fuel for the brain. This campaign explains the brain-food-body connection and how the foods consumers eat can impact how they feel. Both fresh and frozen blueberries will be highlighted as a smart way to amplify flavor and nutrition of meals and snacks, while keeping brain health top of mind. Want more details? You can access USHBC's National Brain Health Month plan from our toolkit at ushbc.org brain to see how you can capitalize on USHBC activations throughout the month. Also, you'll find so many ready-to-use resources, including digital ads, social media graphics and captions, brain food recipes, tip sheets for consumers and health professionals, and much more. We've streamlined our toolkits to be more user-friendly so your marketing teams can more easily download the full library of assets to choose from. June is Brain Health Month. Go to ushbc.org brain. We're here to help. This has been your Marketing Boost. Thank you for your partnership as together we inspire the world to grab a boost of blue. Casey, back to you. Thanks, Jenny. Now let's get back to today's episode with Bernadine Strick. Let's talk then about how do you see the research landscape evolving going forward? 
and changing in the coming years? What, what's your perspective based on what you've done, what you've seen, and, and now as you look forward? Well, I think the fundamentals will be the same. Working with industry to determine the key questions, I've eternally been amazed at, at how growers come up with great questions, and that informs the research. I think where I, I definitely see a need right now is more research related to the impact of climate change, which is affecting every region. I've done quite some research on the physiology of blueberries, determining you know, what factors influence fruit bud set, so how many flower buds are developed. And that's genetically driven, but it's also climate driven. And then how many flowers are per bud, that's mainly genetically driven. And then we have fruit set, how many flowers become berries, and seed set, how many ovules within the ovary become seeds. And seed number is directly related to berry size, which is a big quality and value item. Fruit set and seed set are genetically as well as climate driven. So an example I like to use is we see natural differences between regions on the impact of climate on flower bud development. So if we compare Oregon's Willamette Valley and, and grow Duke here, and we compare Duke and Michigan. So in Oregon, we have a very long autumn with short days and temperatures that are really conducive to good flower bud development. And so we see up to 60% of the total number of buds on a fruiting lateral, a good fruiting lateral in Duke that are flower buds, 60, 60% flower bud set or fruit bud set. In Michigan, it's considerably lower. It might be half that. And that's through nothing the growers are doing. That's simply because the period of good flower bud development with short days and conducive temperatures is much shorter in that type of continental climate. So when we look at climate change, we know it's going to have an effect on maximum potential yield if it affects flower bud number. So we need more research to determine are there genetic differences in resiliency to climate change during flower bud development. In addition to that, we need to study our existing cultivars as too little information and any new cultivars for what are the critical threshold temperatures for good pollen grain germination, the rate of pollen tube growth. Those two things influence a fruit set and seed set. We know that temperature influences pollinator flight and presence, but physiologically there's an impact of temperature also on fruit set and seed set. We don't know how our current cultivars differ. Most of them, there hasn't been research done on. And breeders are not looking at this. Company breeders or public breeders are not looking at this for their new genetics. That needs to change, in my opinion. Looking at, at better resiliency with cultivars that are better adapted to broader temperature ranges. And then with the heat dome that we had in our region last year, we saw big genetic differences in heat tolerance. And that is physiologically related. The temperature and humidity thresholds for the plant shutting down, the stomates closing. When that happens, that happens because they're conserving water, the plants are, even when there's wonderful irrigation. And so 
the thresholds for that are unknown in our current cultivars. And if we can find out what the thresholds for that are, for temperature and humidity, then breeders can breed for that in their new plant material and release cultivars that are better adapted to the heat. One key change I think is gonna be critical for our growers, at least in our region where humidity can be very low, is to put in dual systems. Maybe 25% of our growers now have overhead micro sprinklers for evaporative cooling. I think that's gonna have to increase to reduce the risk of having those big heat dome impacts, which are likely to become more prevalent in the future. Yeah, it was remarkable, uh, obviously this last year and then, and then flooding, you know, I think still trying to understand exactly the impact of what that experience for the Pacific Northwest, those growers on that Sumas border Valley area. Yeah. Where they experienced a really unprecedented moment there in the Valley with all those blueberries being, you know, covered with water for how long and how much. And these things like we found is it's really hard to say or know uh, down to the variety, the region, uh, so many things that are, are going to be unknown that we're going to learn from this experience, but we're going to learn the hard way. And I think what you're saying is uh, there's an opportunity to research this so that we can know it almost in advance and in fact, be preventative in what other opportunities could present themselves for us to survive those difficult moments. Anything else you'd like to share? I mean, again, this has been a great opportunity for me and I think for our audience to just hear from you and, and get your thoughts and, and just absorb more of your wisdom as somebody who's really given so much to our industry. But before we let you go, anything else you'd like to share? Well, I just uh, probably just wrapping it up by saying, uh, reiterating that one of the most rewarding things about this job has been able to personally see farms and growers, many of, of which are family farms, be successful and be more successful because of uh, adoption of, of some of the techniques that we've been able to research, but also to visit their farm and encourage them and help them one-on-one -on -one where possible. And, and that's been extremely rewarding to be able to retire from a 34-year career and know with some confidence that me, my program, students, research assistants have made a, a, a big impact in blueberries as well as the other berries that I've worked on is just a great way to retire. Amen. Well, and hearing from a grower that I know you know and 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 I won't mention their name, but just hearing that person share with me in passing almost in, in our conversation about uh, the industry that Bernadine Strick was probably the most influential person in their life, including blueberries. So it, 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 wow. was, it wasn't just <laughs> that you had made an impact in the, their fields. You had been a genuine person in their life who just made a tremendous difference in where they're at today. Really, you have my admiration. And, uh, you know, I look at my career forward here just two years into the blueberry industry, but really a tremendous amount of respect for what you've been able to do and the lives you've been able to touch and the influence you've been able to have on one industry has been tremendous. And so for that, thank you. On behalf of the industry, again, we really appreciate your tenure in this business, your commitment to our farm and our families and the work you've done to help us get to where we're at today. So thank you, Bernadine. Thank you, Casey. That, that means a lot. Thanks for sharing that.
Well, I, I hope we're all enjoying the same takeaways from today's conversation, but what an incredible career, really. I have enjoyed getting to know Bernadine. I've certainly admired the work that she's done and the lives that she's touched. And what I think stands out to me is just how focused she was on things like profitability for our growers from the very beginning. That was obviously important to her. It's important to us as an industry, um, but she wasn't just the white tower and trying to think of just best practices and things outside of what really matters, which is the ability to be successful and continue to grow and harvest our crops. But what a, what a, what an influence she's had on the success of the Pacific Northwest and certainly the organic production that we see today. And lastly, I would just say how much resources made a difference. I think you heard her really specifically address the fact that uh, she wasn't in want or need she not only had the vision and the drive and the smarts, but she was supported financially by the industry and in-kind contributions to do so. And I certainly appreciate her sharing that and acknowledging what also helped make all that success happen for her and her career. So great to have her on the show. That's it for episode 93. We're going to put the 2017 research that she referenced on carbon sequestration in the show notes, along with the PowerPoint that Bernadine shared at the Oregon Blueberry Conference earlier this year when she covered key tips for high yield quality and cost cutting production methods. So that would be something to check out in our show notes. And if you'd like to send Bernadine a note of appreciation for her career and commitment to our industry over her 34 year career, we'd be happy to pass along those notes. Just shoot us a note at industry at ushbc.org. Again, send those notes to us at industry at ushbc.org and we'll be sure to pass those along to her. Again, thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with more innovation, collaboration, family, and hard work right here on the Business of Blueberries.